Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hello. Great to have you company today. Do you remember where you were when you first heard this song? It was 1979 and that song changed singer Ricky Lee Jones's life forever. Few artists can lay claim to being as individual and eclectic as she is. Ricky Lee Jones has always had a restless creative spirit and an overriding desire to remain authentic and true to herself. Today, with a new jazz album to share, a very spiritual Ricky Lee Jones joins me in a rather no-holds-barred conversation. Ricky Lee Jones, you just seem to be getting better and better. Is there a reason for that? Well, uh, I think that the popularity pendulum swings far away and then comes back. We've just made a great record that followed a really great book, so that may have something to do with it. But it feels like it's also a kind of spiritual thing of sometimes you're far away and sometimes you're close. Let's talk about this record. You've really come back to your roots here, haven't you? Yeah, I guess, you know, I have a lot of roots, but I've come back to what (laughs) I do most naturally as far as singing goes, which is jazz singing. I I, uh, started out as a jazz singer. Yeah, I guess roots, sure. Just in time. You found me just in time Before you came Things were running low I was lost The losing dice were tossed My bridges all were crossed Then I met you Now you're here and now I know just where I'm going No more doubt or fear I found my way Love came just in time You found me just in time You changed my lonely life I would say that my greatest strength is singing. That's how I feel. But in fact, people record my songs probably more than they play me on the radio. As a stylist, I think I've had a lot of impact on how people sing. I love to sing. You were determined to be a singer. Well, I had aspirations. My girlfriend and I would sit and write songs all day after school. And so, yes, it was definitely a big hope. So when you sat with your girlfriend and wrote songs after school, who were your influences at that time that made you? And Young were probably the biggest influences on us. And then Cat Stevens and then Elton John might have come in a little bit. Then I discovered Laura Nero and that kind of shifted all that folky stuff away. I was constantly being educated because there was so much diverse music As the 60s ended, all these new voices showed up and you could go in any direction you wanted to. Rod Stewart, who led uh, David Bowie and all this stuff, which didn't particularly speak to me, but it was all there to influence you and become part of you. I never felt compelled to sit down and start trying to write a song. What was it in you that you said to yourself, oh, I think I'll try and do this too? My dad's a musician. His father was a musician. You know, I was the only one of all the kids uh, who sang. I sang all the time. So I don't know how to answer your question except to say that that's just who I was at a very young age. And who taught you the craft of songwriting? Songwriting, I taught myself. But singing, uh, my father helped me a lot. 
So your parents promoted your profession as a singer. There was never. I'm not sure they promoted it. You know, when I was eight or nine, and my dad, who was often away, it was a big way that he could relate to me. So we had that between us for a little while. But I think the main thing that they gave me was support to be an artist of any kind. I think a lot of parents think that's just play and you have to quit doing the things you love and do something you don't love. And that's what being a grown-up is. And uh, my parents definitely did not do that with me. Were there times where you questioned that decision to go forward in that profession? Well, I only spent a year and a half really seriously trying to go forward in it. And And it was really hard. I mean, there were other things happening. I was homeless. I was the kind of girl that just couldn't get a job and hold it. So I think, you know, life was leading me (laughs) to the stage in a weird way. But, you know, I questioned everything because my choices, if something didn't happen in the music field, whether writing for other people or anything, my choices were bad. Whatever they were, a stenographer or a waitress, I wasn't going to be a very happy person. A long stretch of headlights filmed into our night. They tiptoe into truck stops. And sleepy diesel lights. Volcanoes rumble in the taxi. Glow in the dark, camels in the driver's seat. A slow, easy heart. But you ran out of gas down the road of peace, and then the battery went dead, and now the cable won't. This seemed like the only path towards a a possible happy life and one that went out into the world and made other people happy. What a great job. I was so lucky. I mean, you know, I was a high school dropout. I was in the six or nine months before I got signed. I was homeless. I was sleeping on people's couches. But it was an amazing drop down to the very bottom and rise up to the very top in a year, 15 months. Some people struggle all their lives to get a hit out, and uh, 12 or 15 months when you were discovered with that song, Easy Money. That's right, that's right. And it was Lyle George, the founder of the band Little Feet, who came upon that. Can you tell us the story of that? Sure. I was about 22, I think, when I met Ivan Alls in Venice. I'd been in LA and had some weird things happen. And I got dropped off in Venice where I met Ivan and uh, Alfred Johnson and a couple people who started to get me work in music. Suddenly they heard me sing and said, I can get you a job singing background. And Alfred said, I want to write songs with you. And um, Ivan said, I want to show you some things about the craft of songwriting. And I just soaked up everything I could for these three or four months that I was with those folks. And it made me feel like a professional. And then what happened was uh, I just ran out of money. I'd had a job for a little while and unemployment and I ran out of everything. So I was crashing with my old boyfriend when a next door neighbor I had a long time said, I want to be your manager. I believe in you. And I'm going to get you photos and I'm going to introduce you to a lawyer and we're going to make a tape and send it to the record companies. And that's exactly what he did. And the photograph 
on the cover of Pieces of Treasure, the new record, is from that photo session that Nick Mathay arranged, my very first photo session. There was a Joe leaning on the back door, a couple Jills that had their eyes on a couple bills, and the eyes were stating they was waiting to get their hands on some easy money. They flip a dime once in a while. I'll tell you, it's this time. One step up, one step back, one loosened her shoulder strap. She couldn't speak, her knees got weak. Oh, she could almost taste it. Easy money. Is that how Lau George got onto that song and used it on his solo album? In that couple of months where I told you where I was crashing with my old boyfriend again, I called Ivan and said, I'm thinking of just going back home to my mom because nothing's happened. He said, give me a day and I'll call you back at the payphone. And he called back and he said, all right. I called Lowell and he's coming over. He wants to hear Easy Money because Ivan sang some of Easy Money to him over the phone. And the, the next day, my life changed. The next day, Lowell came over with a Sony reel-to-reel and recorded me singing Easy Money. And he came back a month later. He had made it his first single. That's how it happened. Bam, bam. There was a joke. He was leaning on her back door, couple chills. With her eyes on a couple bills, I was thinking they were waiting to get your hands on some easy money. Yeah. So they flipped a dime. One said, I'll take heads this time. One step up, one step back, one loosen the shoulder strap. She couldn't speak, her knees got weak, she could almost taste that. You must have been jumping out of your skin with excitement. I don't think so. I think I was super cool. I was always super super cool. Really? (laughs) For for something like that to happen in your life to to be changed up so much, how do you remain super cool? Because you have to remain super cool. When your destiny meets you, you have to meet it as if it was meant to be there. So if you go, ah! It goes, oh, I'm at the wrong door. Yeah, <laughs> come on in, I've been waiting for you. That's awesome advice. So um, your advice to anybody listening would be to remain super cool at any time, no matter what. You betcha. Wait till you're all alone and howl just a little bit. But know that you're meant to be there. So, so don't howl too much because you were always supposed to be there. It, it was just an accident that you weren't. Have you always been so spiritual? I'm not sure. I don't know who I was before. You know, I changed every few years, but I was not always confident, except when it came to music. I was totally confident. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. But as a girl or a person having to sit with other people and talk, not so confident, no. And obviously that changed over time. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) It was 1979 when your debut album, the Ricky Lee Jones, won the Grammy for the Best New Artist. You can't tell me you were super cool still then when you picked up the Grammy Award. I was super cool. Watch it on the, you can see it on the internet. I was the coolest thing. Oh, my God. So when did the exciting moments happen? You know, if they called and said, you're nominated for six Grammys, I thought... Good, I should be. And then I said, I'm not going to go to the Grammy ceremony. I don't believe in it. I don't believe they should pit us against each other and say, this guy won, but this guy didn't. And I want to keep my feet on the ground. If I go to this ceremony, then I'm participating in this glamour thing that I really don't believe in. And at the last minute, the ceremony probably had started, and I said, I want to go. So... (laughs) I just went, Ricky, why are you doing this? Go to the go to the ceremony. Maybe it was fear of losing. I don't know why. They're not my people. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I never you. felt 
all around them. So Bob Regeer came and picked me up in a limo and we hurried over to the ceremony. We got in, they set me in a chair and they announced my category and I came up and got it. I was like still out of breath from running in. I wore what I thought was the coolest outfit ever, which is street clothes looking good. I wore my leather jacket and a boa, and I had some capris. And so there were some people that thought I should have dressed up glamorously, but that's not who musicians are. We're weirdos. And (laughs) when you have um, dressers, you know, put you in costume and have you look like somebody that you're not, how will I ever believe anything you sing? You have to be who you are all the time. Then at the after party, which is why everybody goes anyway, Bob Dylan came up to me. If there was ever a moment where I went, that was it. You know, when he came up and said, you are a real poet. Don't ever stop what you're doing. So that was the kind of thing that as the years have gone by, I've just gone, look at that. That's a beautiful flower that never dies. What a kind thing for him to say. That night, it was it was pretty wonderful. won Song of the Year at the Grammys in 1980. It really does sound like a mix of so many familiar styles and then again like nothing that anybody's ever heard before, doesn't it? Hang in as Ricky Lee Jones tells us more about it. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for being here and please excuse my croaky voice, again full of a cold. I'm so excited to be having this frank and honest chat with the super cool singer and songwriter Ricky Lee Jones, who's about to share the backstory of her biggest hit, Chucky's In Love. That song is about a friend named Chucky Weiss, who is one of the hangers-on on Santa Monica Boulevard of Tom Waits. He was his good friend and confidant. And really, if I thought about it, a guiding light for him. He had a special affinity for what Waits did back then. This was, uh, you know, 77, 78, 79. And so I was a friend of theirs on the periphery. So I saw an envelope with his name on it that said Charles E. Weiss. I went, Charles E. Weiss, Charles, Chuck E. Weiss, Chuck E. Ooh, because, you know, Chucky is usually C-H-U-C-K-Y. Yeah. And so making it the E opened up a whole other story. Chucky was never in love with me. It was just kind of inspired by different conversations people were having and behaviors that I was seeing. But that vowel went on to be a trend in music and culture for, I'd say, most of the 80s. Really? People called themselves Tone E and Sheila E and She E. It was just using the E as the I-E sound. It was a phenomenon. And how did he feel about having that song written about him? I bet he didn't remain super cool. No, he did not remain super (laughs) cool. I think it was really hard on him. You know, it was such a big hit 
and he had nothing to do with, with it, but he had to reap the attention. And, you know, people always make fun of you if a girl makes you famous anyway, but I think it was hard on him. And then he got a gig in L.A. because he was Chuck E. I think it was a, a blessing and a curse for him throughout his life. of the 80s. Through the 70s, it was all happening for you. But for the 80s, you were this trendsetter, your beautiful big smile and your long blonde hair and your spandex one piece and your lacy elbow length gloves and heels. You were really out there doing it, weren't you? Yes, I was. I think one reason is because I didn't dress like anybody else. So people noticed how I dressed. And they liked it, so they went out and dressed like it, and, and then in a short time, it was everywhere. Again, you remain super cool about that. You're trendsetting for, for an entire generation in terms not only of the music they're listening to, but how they're dressing. Yeah, you got to, what are you going to do, you know? You have to find some way to contain yourself, and if you have a big impact or no impact, you can't cry about it, and you can't run around and go, woo, woo, woo. Now I might go, woo, woo, woo. kept a lid on it all for yourself. Is that how you managed to survive it? That's exactly right. Because otherwise you'll get puffed up since so much attention. And I did get a little puffed up, but it would be impossible not to. But you want to keep your feet on the ground and stay a human being. If success comes on a big scale like that, there is no map for how to act and how to have a life. So it's too easy to go, I'm better than other people. I'm more important than other people. So when great things happen, it's not to say don't congratulate yourself, but you got to keep your feet on the ground. I absolutely hear you. Time magazine actually called you the Duchess of Coolsville. I love that. There's a new article now in Uncut where they call me the Pirate Queen. I think I might like that even more. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But when Time magazine did name you the Duchess of Coolsville, what happened then in 1985 when you abdicated and moved yourself off to France? You, yeah. you walked away. I think that I just couldn't cope anymore with the changing tides of it. I had a wonderful tour in Australia, and they were like, you're like the Beatles here. But when I got home, broke up with my boyfriend and just turned 30, I had made the magazine, which and done a, a really wonderful theatrical tour did something very different. I wrote a, a bit of theater around the songs and it was very personal stuff and very different. You know, they were putting me in amphitheaters and I was trying to do this theater. So there was a huge gap between my creativity and the people 
that I reluctantly had around me to help see my vision. And I think it was so disappointing. And I had had a little nice time in France that I decided to go there. I confess that I married somebody that I did not know and uh, who didn't speak any English. And I went, yeah, all right. (laughs) And we went to France. And um, I think that was my way of just breaking everything down into its simplest possible thing where I got to deal with buying bread. They're mean and they don't understand what I'm saying And that's what I need right now, because what I don't want to be is the queen of the world. So I went there and lived there for a few years. And then I got pregnant and came back to America and started to record again. Well, we were born forever. We are twins in a fugitive mind. Friends should stay together. Light the world with the fugitive God. success. And I'd love to get a blue ribbon once in a while, but I don't want to become somebody who's constantly sucking at the tits of fame and celebrity (laughs) because you'll die from that. You'll never be fed and you'll die from starvation. You have to have a friend and a little bit of family and people who maybe like your music, but they don't love it. And they keep your feet on the ground, you know. Ricky, when you did start making music again in 1989, the one that you released was Flying Cowboys, and that was produced by Steely Dan's Walter Becker. The first single from that one was Satellites, and that shot straight to number one. So you couldn't put a foot wrong. You'd managed to have your time out. When you came back, you hit the top again. And 10 years afterwards, in 1999, you got another nod for Flying Cowboys at the Grammys. Did I? Yeah, (laughs) you did. Why Flying Cowboys? I think because pirates thematically was out on the water, so I took them out to the place where there was no water at all. I grew up in the desert anyway, so in the dreamscape that this stuff comes from, it it made some kind of sense. Every title I've come up with, almost every title, is just another term for heaven, whether it's um, traffic from paradise or flying cowboys even pirates, the other side of desire. There are all kinds of secret titles for the other world, for the other place. Wow, you really go deep, don't you? (laughs) No one could ever accuse you of living on the surface, could they? Taking my time Hurrying along I do what I Delicious to wish this that you never feel alone. You've collaborated with so many big names, people like Randy Newman, Walter Becker, as we mentioned, Quincy Jones, Tori Amos, even Ben Harper. Uh-huh. In, what was that like in 2012? Well, I was, that was a really hard time in my life. The IRS had taken all my money and I was was really in in a bad place. But I still had some ideas and, and I had this friend named Sheldon who had been a bass player and he had created a recording studio. So 
I started going over to Sheldon's to work. And Sheldon was the only person going, you're so great. For some reason, all that praise you're talking about had fallen all the way. Really? And there was nobody going, you're really great, except Sheldon. So I went over to Sheldon's and he always say something so kind that I thought, I'm going to record here. And he said, well, you know, Ben Harper, he's made a record here, and I bet you he'd love to work with you. Should I ask him? And even though I thought Ben Harper was like one of the best-looking guys I ever saw, (laughs) he's just going to make me nervous. At that point, it was quite the opposite of where I am now. Uh, I bet exactly the opposite. But I said, I'll give it a try. And I met him. He's so gorgeous and so kind and incredibly talented. I didn't even know how talented he was yet. He said, I'll tell you, you know, I'll do whatever, however you want to do it. I said, "Okay, don't come (laughs) till I leave. (laughs) It's like Catch-22, Colonel Thurnall or whatever his name was. So I record and then I'd leave and then he'd come in and listen and maybe put a guitar down or do what he <laughs> and that was how we made that record now something's changed it's not that I feel but maybe it's that I took care of you too many times and you grew weaker for a kindness And sometimes kindness from a friend Can break a man I can understand You sit there like a child man just a, a bad time in my life and I, I couldn't bear to be seen or listened to. We go through all sorts of phases through our lives, don't we? I have to ask you though, you, despite all of that, you were still super cool? Super cool. Let's see. Was I, I don't know if cool was even in my language anymore. I was just trying to get from one place to the other. And, you know, when it comes to playing music and standing on a stage, I used to do a thing where I always had a drink, one drink before I played, but I don't usually drink ever. So it was a real false thing. And if I'm saying I'm real, how can I possibly be real if I'm taking a drink before I play? So I did this thing in San Francisco about that time where I, for the first time in my life, went out on stage without having a drink. And you don't know how tough my childhood was, you know, moving around so much, but I stood in front of all those people and I let the feeling of love wash over me. And before I always kept that thing between them and me, so they couldn't hurt me, but I took a chance and it was good. That's when I started changing. 
so cool. I don't know if if some other thing began to happen where an exchange of love and accountability began to happen by showing up on stage. And now, you know, I like looking at them. I like that they've come to be loved by me. And I think that's what artists don't realize is they think they're there to get the audience to love them, but we're there to give love. They pay and travel a long way so that you'll look at them and love them with all your might, the way that you sing, the things that you do. And once I realized that, and when this isn't about me, it's about them, then I thought, I love this job. It's kind of like being chosen. And so the Duchess of Coolsville found a new way of being. Don't go anywhere. Ricky Lee's journey isn't over yet. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. We've been hearing how Ricky Lee Jones found a new way that didn't require her to wear the mask of aloofness any longer. In 2015, a film called The Other Side of Desire documented the making of the album by the same name. It featured Ricky dedicating the song Jimmy Choo's to the famous shoe brand and was her first album of originals in years. Ricky released a single of the Paul Rogers Simon Kirk song Bad Company off her album Kicks, which included cover versions of many other songs. It was an unusual cover record. How did you choose which ones to include? It was just, here's what I feel like doing right now. So that's what we're going to do. We had tried a few other things. I worked so hard on a tune called Oogum Boogum. It just didn't work out. I seem to be better at rock. Even though I love soul from the 1960s, that stuff, it's already been done perfectly. So I think the rock stuff was better. And we also did, why does the sun keep on shining? We did... Quicksilver Girl, just an odd collection of songs that that I grew up with. Things like um, Bad Company stuff, you know, things people wouldn't have expected that I love and wanted to sing. Company Always on the run Destiny now your latest release is all about jazz it's called pieces of treasure and it's a reunion with your lifelong friend and the legendary producer russ Tidelman, who actually co-produced your albums in the 80s and that very first album with chucky's on it yeah the first album chucky and the next one pirates were both russ Tidelman, were they yeah that's right how'd you come full circle back to russ i think after i did kicks to be honest, I just went, I'm just dying here. I can't find something I adore anymore. I'm ending. And that was truly how I felt. How I got the idea to call Russ, I don't know. But I thought, I think I shouldn't produce, I should just sing because I don't want to hold these instruments anymore. I want to open up my arms and sing to the crowd. And the only way that's gonna happen 
is if I can sing jazz, <laughs> because in the stuff I write, the musicians are very dependent on me playing it. So I was thinking that, and then when I met up with Russ, he said, you have to do a jazz record before you do anything else. We must do the jazz. And I thought, this is right, because I'm getting older. Jazz is a very complicated story, so I should do it now before my voice has aged out. Oddly enough, in the course of making the records, I found a new way to mm -hmm. sing. I talked about that pendulum, and it just felt like the pendulum is coming right here, right in front of me again. I feel powerful, and people are acknowledging my work. So what is it that we seek? Do we seek the stranger to say, I see you? Or do we seek the lover to say, I'll stay. What is it that we want when we do this work for an audience? Why do we go, I go home, I'm so empty? Well, partly because we put up a big wall so people couldn't get in with good or bad. Right. Yes. Yeah. So if you take that wall down and take in the good, somebody's going to slap you. They're going to say terrible thing. You're going to hear it and read it. Are you prepared to let all the people, especially that internet stuff? So I just think about why do I do what do I do? I love singing, but what is it I seek? If I want acknowledgement, if I want an award, what do I want? You know, why do I want somebody I don't know and probably wouldn't like to say, here's an award, <laughs> I say, you can have it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know why, you know, maybe they're the only guys giving awards. I always thought there could be a peer group, you know, musicians said, that was a good record, good job. But I thought it feels like they're saying you're worth something. Your career and life will be remembered. Grab your coat. And get your hat Leave your worries by the doorstep Just direct your feet To the sunny side of the street Can you hear that pitter pat? There have been two is your step life so sweet on the sunny side of the street then they create this bullshit thing called the rock and roll hall of fame like that there ain't no musicians who had anything to do with the rock and roll there was seymour stein you know Nothing to do with music. And then they induct year after year, man after man after man after man, who many of them were far inferior to girl or that girl or maybe that girl. So it's it's so askew to a certain kind of music nominated and supported by a certain kind of guy. So if I'm not inducted, you mean I'm going to hell? And I liked that Joni Mitchell went, I, I don't want to be in your thing. But it was evil of them to say, you're not invited to be in our thing because you're not a rock and roll. What are you talking about? You've inducted Louis Armstrong and not invite one of the premier folk rock goddesses. So I just thought they are sexist bullshit. So what is it that I want? Did you find and the answer? I better give you the answer now. In the last six <laughs> months, since I've started doing these interviews, the journalists have said the most remarkable, loving, centered things to me that I could have ever hoped to have heard that tell me, we heard you, you mattered, and you mattered to my kid. And when I saw you, I went out to find out about jazz. Everything I hoped to have done people are starting to say, you did that. And that's every Grammy and every award and every uh, wig and every great dress and everything you go on. <laughs> hey, look at me. That's everything. So 
it's coming to me now. The question I ask myself is, will you let it in? Will you go ahead and say, I did a good job? Or are you going to keep that wall up? I will see. I'm not sure. The way you wear your hat, the way you sip your tea, the memory of all that. No, no, they can't take that away from me. The way your smile just beams, the way you sing off key, the way you haunt my dreams, yeah. We might never, never meet again on the bumpy road of love. But I'll always, always keep the memory of the way you hold your knife, the way we dance till three, the way you change my life. Oh, no. is holding up it's better today than it was 30 40 years ago it seems it's able to tell the story still so and wow you tell it so well what's your favorite track um ricky lee jones from pieces of treasure is there one well personally i quite love the last track which is i mean i love just in time that's my favorite one but i also like the very last track which is all in the game because that's a tune that people have kind of thrown away. And I knew that it's a heartbroken person telling that story. It's a man say, I think it's, it's somebody saying, I know you're brokenhearted right now and you think he's gone, but he'll come back. And that's where the heartbreak is because we don't know he'll come back. But in this text, he says, sometimes he won't call but soon he'll be here and soon he'll be there is where I find the perfect balance of pain and hope. And I went, there aren't that many songs that can hit that thing and he'll kiss you and he'll touch your fingers. It's like, wow, how did people miss that song? So I did it extremely slow so that you'd hear All her heartache and also all the beauty of her waiting. So I think in that one is a true little piece of treasure. Yes. Many a tear has to fall, but it's all in the game. All in the wonderful game We know as love You had words with him Up. Tell me about the book. So the memoir came out in 2021, I guess, uh, during COVID. I had worked on it quite sincerely for seven to 10 years. 
it's a story of my childhood, my wild childhood, not so unlike a lot of Australian childhoods, mm -hmm. traveling to the desert and um, growing up with my my itinerant family, all the things that happened there. And then finding hitchhiking in 69 and finding my way to LA, to Venice, and all the adventures before I got famous, which are many and wonderful. And then about three quarters of the way through the book, fame comes. So I was telling the story of all the family. I learned how to write a book as opposed to a song or a poem. And I, I really love writing, and I hope I have the time and inclination to write more stories about my life. I love to sing, but I am getting older, and at some point it might be terribly difficult for me. So if I could tell stories in other ways, that would be the greatest possible thing that could happen. Thank you so, so much, Ricky Lee Jones. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was just fabulous hearing your stories. Next time. Look forward. <laughs> Bye now. Ricky Lee Jones's memoir is called Last Chance Texaco, Chronicles of an American Troubadour. She's come a long way, hasn't she, from that young girl who found fame and fortune with Chuck E back in 1979. What an amazing story she tells. Thanks for being here with me today. I really hope you've enjoyed the episode. As I always tell you, if there's someone special you'd like to hear from, just send me a message through the website, abreathoffreshair.com.au, and I'll do my best to get that person onto the show for you. Till we meet again same time next week, have fun, won't you? I'll see you then. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day, oh baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.